0: This is another episode of Connecting the Dots podcast. I'm Skip Stewart, Vice President and Chief Improvement Officer for Baptist Memorial Healthcare.
1: Hi, everybody. I'm H.F. Mason. I'm a General Surgeon and Chief Medical Officer at Baptist Memorial Hospital DeSoto. And hey, everybody. I'm Jake Lancaster, an
2: internal medicine physician and the Chief Medical Information Officer for the Baptist System.
0: Well, today we are so honored to have Dr. Tejal Gandhi, the Chief Safety and Transformation Officer at Prescaney. Welcome, Dr. Gandhi.
3: Thanks so much, Skip. It's my pleasure to be here. Um, so, yeah, I'm the Chief Safety and Transformation Officer at Prescaney. Just um, a little bit about my background and then kind of what I do at Prescaney. Um, so, I'm an internal medicine doc and uh, started out as a health services researcher actually i won't tell you how long ago Um, and my research interest was patient safety and using it to improve quality and safety uh, both in the inpatient setting but actually particularly in the outpatient setting Uh, and then uh, shifted to hospital operations ran patient safety at brigham and women's in boston for about a decade or so and then was a chief quality officer for our system partners healthcare Um, and then Kind of made a right turn a little bit um, and left to run the National Patient Safety Foundation uh, for about four years, and then did a stint at the Institute for Healthcare Improvement when NPSF and IHI merged. So um, that's my background, a uh, long history in quality and safety, as you can tell. Um, and then uh, about a year and a few months ago, I transitioned to Prescaney as the Chief Safety and Transformation Officer, and. Um, you know, Press Ganey's mission is to reduce suffering. And uh, we do that through a variety of ways, whether it's through surveys of uh, patients and the workforce to understand their experiences and also um, through consulting services that we do, through products that we offer, etc. cetera, but really with that overarching uh, goal of reducing suffering. And, um, you know, it'll be fun to talk about connecting the dots because part of what drew me to Press Ganey was connecting the dots across experience, engagement, safety, quality, and understanding how they really all um, connect together. So that is my story.
1: Well, Dr. Gandhi, once again, thank you very much for uh, being here, and thank you for taking time out of your—I know your busy schedule. Um, back in 1999, just a year after I started practice, you know, the Institute of Medicine came out with a landmark report: "To Air Is Human." Which said that uh, up to maybe fifty to a hundred thousand deaths are caused each year by uh, by medical errors. And you know, by the way, that was just a, a year or two after Jake was born. He, I know, he doesn't look it, but he he actually is is a doctor. Oh, that, that
2: was several years before I was born. I was just going to put that.
1: <laughs> but you know that that report really opened up a lot of eyes and it caused a, a big, a big ruckus in the healthcare community. And I, I'd like to ask you, how, how have we done since then? How far have we come? How much further do we have to go? And and what are some of the, the biggest opportunities that you see now for, uh, for safety and healthcare?
3: Yeah, it's a great question. Um, you know, I, um, I was just finishing up uh, my fellowship actually when that report came out. And, uh, you know, I remember, so I started the patient safety program at Brigham and Women's and what's interesting is, you know, now when when you talk to people, they they can't imagine a time when there weren't safety teams and safety programs in hospitals, but we literally had to write the proposal to get funded to have a safety program. And I remember one of the chiefs, uh, I was presenting about this new program, and one of the chiefs uh, actually asked me, you know, Dr. Gandhi, do you really think we make mistakes here at Brigham and Women's Hospital? Uh, which, you know, I was oh, no. a couple of years out of fellowship, so it was kind of an intimidating question. But, um, but I said yes, I do. Uh, and so when people ask me how far we've come, I know we have a long way to go, and I'll talk about that. But, but we have come a long way because I honestly don't think anyone would get asked that question anymore. Uh, so in terms of the changes in, in in our culture, in our understanding, in our measurement, in our training, I mean, there's been a lot that actually has happened in that 20 years. Um, that being said, we absolutely have a lot more that we need to do. You know, those statistics you quoted are just from the inpatient setting, for example. Uh, and we know that there's harm happening in every setting. Uh, you know, COVID certainly brought that out loud and clear. But, you know, primary cares, um, ambulatory surgery, uh, nursing homes, rehabs, you name it. So, so the scope of the problem is really large, and it's not surprising that in 20 years we haven't totally solved it. Um, in terms of where we need to go, the I had the good fortune of co-chairing for the last few years uh, a National Steering Committee for Patient Safety that was convened by IHI, and we actually brought together about 30 organizations from around the country who've been really leading on patient safety for the last 20 years to sort of ask that question. Where have we been? Where do we need to go? What do we need to do um, to accelerate? And we released a national action plan in the fall. And what we said was, we've done a good job of doing things project by project, right? Like you've got your readmissions project, or your central line infection project, or your Um, you know, uh, safety in the OR project, um. But we haven't necessarily done a great job thinking about the foundational. Stuff that needs to happen so that we are improving across the board. We kind of are, you know, improving project by project, which is going to be pretty slow because we know there's lots of things to improve. And if we do it project by project, it will take a long time. So, um. So that national action plan focuses on four foundational areas. So when you ask where should we focus, this is this is where I've landed, is really thinking about these foundations. So the four are first leadership and culture. We've been talking a lot about culture for 20 years and we still have a long way to go. If you look at HRQ data, 50% mm-hmm. of people still say they're working in a punitive environment um, oh. in 2018. So, um, you know, a long way to go on leadership and culture. Uh, number two is patient engagement really getting patients uh, as partners in how we're designing care. Three is workforce safety and patient safety for a number of years that we focused on the patient side and not the workforce side. Uh, that's changing obviously, especially um, given the events of the last year. And then the fourth area is uh, the learning system. So how are we learning from events and really improving and closing loops and you know making sure that Um, we're being transparent and getting to root causes and all that sort of stuff. Um, Still a lot of opportunity on that front too, to make sure that when things happen or we have near misses or whatever, that we're actually driving the improvement that we need. So those are kind of the foundation pieces that I think, um, you know, it's time for the field to really really put effort into. Mm -hmm. Not that we haven't already, but it just means more effort.
2: You said a a few things that that um, you know really brought up a few topics that we've talked about on this program uh, over the last few episodes. Uh, one is is really you know what you were talking about with getting back to the foundation and really get that broad area uh, across the system as opposed to working in silos and fixing you know one or two areas um, that somebody may specialize in. And, and so we were joking before the podcast that. Uh, internists make the best uh, CMIOs, and now I can say that internists probably make the best patient safety advocates as well. Um, no, no offense, H. F. Mason, but just general <laughs> surgeons are not going to cut it. And, and one of the things that I, I think
3: <laughs> no probably <intended>. helps.
2: <laughs> one of the things I, I think that really helps is that you do have that broad range of exposure and experiences as an internist, and you're able to connect different dots. That may enable you to see the foundation a little bit better than somebody with more of a narrow um, specialty focus. Um, That's just 1 of my theories. But 1 of the things I wanted. To ask along those lines is, you know, outside of being a physician, how do you incorporate other people within the healthcare system? Other roles that have a broader range of, of, of exposure that may bring a different perspective to patient safety events. Uh, than a physician might.
3: It's so important. Um, You know, I talked about patient partnership and and that being really critical and having voice of the patient and so forth, but it's really the voice of the whole team, right? And, you know, we talk about the cultures we're trying to create, having that um, flattening of hierarchy so everybody feels comfortable participating, speaking up and all of that. But even as you think about then that learning system and the improvement piece, you know, you need to have... Uh, in high reliability, we call it deference to expertise, right? The people at the front lines doing the work are the ones with the expertise to think about the right solutions. And that's not just the docs often we're not really at that front front line. but you know, you need the nurse, you need the the physical therapist or the respiratory technician or the you know unit clerk or whoever it might be, the folks at the front line to to help think about how to. Optimized processes, so so I think that's just a really you know important point. There's teamwork in clinical care that we know is so important, but then there's teamwork in that process improvement piece as well that that really is going to bring all the voices to the table, uh, including the patient voice, to help us redesign.
1: You 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 talked about uh, when you were uh, giving your introduction, you talked about connecting the dots between engagement and safety and and talking about, let's talk about physician engagement. And, you know, we, I'm a surgeon and um, I I don't think I'm, I'm a disruptive surgeon, but we, we all have worked with disruptive physicians. And for a long time there, there was this, you know, wrong, there was this misconception that who cares if the guy's a jerk, you know, he's a great surgeon. Technically he, he, he's a great surgeon, but I think you know, there's good data to show that actually disruptive physicians actually have poor outcomes and and tend to make more errors. Uh, Could could you elaborate on that a little bit?
3: Well, there's certainly data that, um, you know, physicians that have more complaints and things like that against them have, uh, you know, an increased likelihood of malpractice uh, and other claims. They have worse patient uh, satisfaction scores, those kinds of things. you know, and I mean, if you think about how important that teamwork piece is, we know teamwork is related to safety outcomes. If you are the disruptive doc who people are afraid to speak up because they're afraid they're going to get yelled at by you, you know, they're not going to maybe you know question you in the in the uh, uh, you know uh, uh, surgical checklist or whatever process you're doing. Um, that is setting up risk absolutely. Uh, so I think I think we're seeing a shift in that. Finally, that, you know, those types of behaviors aren't being tolerated and, and sort of this concept of um, physical harm to the workforce is, is critically important, but also that emotional harm, which results from bullying, disrespectful behavior, et cetera, that it needs just as much attention because of the epidemic of burnout and other things that are happening as well, that, you know, we have to create environments where people feel respected, they feel included, they feel like, um, you know, they're being, uh, you know, treated in the ways that they want to. And that's the only way we'll get to that teamwork and other things that we know is so critical for the outcomes for patients. Uh, So so I think we're finally getting to that point. Um, You know, the other so so here's a story about connecting the dots. These are the kinds of things I like, because I think it is that uh, nerdy internist to me. I like, I like when we look at data, but we just did this analysis at Prescani because we have data from multiple sources. So we looked at safety culture data nationally and correlated that with workforce engagement and also with perceptions of inclusion on the diversity, equity, inclusion front. We have a module that measures you know, how inclusive do you feel like your uh, workplace is? Not surprisingly, safety culture, engagement, and inclusion go hand in hand, highly correlated. And so that's to me a real connect the dots because if we're trying to create that safety culture, we have to have an engaged workforce and we have to have an inclusive workforce. And we should think about, not having the safety team working on safety culture and HR working on engagement and diversity office working on inclusion, but we need to bring them all together because they are so connected and interrelated. And that also can help you maybe have one initiative uh, instead of three. Uh, But those are the kinds of connections I think that are really important to make. Like you wanna work on safety, then yeah, engagement and inclusion have to be part of that as well.
1: Absolutely. You mentioned that uh, sadly, that a high percentage of people in, in who work in the healthcare in a healthcare system say they work in a punitive environment, and and here in, at Baptist we are trying to create what we call a a just culture. And and for our listeners out there, uh, define what a just culture is in, in the healthcare setting.
3: Sure. Um. So the way I like to talk about just culture is that you know. Human beings are not punished for mistakes that could be made by any person in that same environment in that context, Um, but there is accountability for uh, certain behaviors when you are, you know, intentionally flaunting the rules or things like that. So it's not a no accountability. So we got we got into trouble with this. You know, 20 years ago we were saying, you know, we need a blame-free culture and all that sort of stuff, and we kind of got into trouble because some because folks appropriately said, well, there has to be some accountability, especially, you know, if You know, somebody refuses to do the the, uh, pre-op checklist, you know, the the surgical timeout. Someone just refuses to do it. Well, and with all the training and this and that, and they're still refusing, there has to be some accountability. And so I think that's where just culture really then got its strength to say that in the vast majority of cases, we aren't going to punish and blame people who, you know, made mistakes because the system set them up to fail and it could happen to anybody. But, you know, we also do need to have that accountability for that small subset of cases where, um, you know, people really intentionally kind of, uh, didn't follow the the protocols and things like that.
1: Sure. We, you know, we, we like to say it's, it's the process, not the person, but the person still has to do the process. Sure yeah. And,
3: well, and that actually, so this is a really interesting point because, um, I think, you know, in safety, we, from, for many years we've said it's about the system it's about the system we're not blaming individuals it's about the system and I I was saying that more than anyone probably in the last 20 years but um, my colleagues at Prescani who've been doing a lot of consulting and safety have a really interesting model this is HPI it's a, a consulting component of Prescani uh, and they have a lot of folks from aviation and nuclear and engineers and other fields but what they've actually been focusing on is in addition to the system stuff and the process stuff the people part is really important and not for punishing and blaming but actually you know we as human beings are very skilled at actually intercepting error and catching error and so we need to leverage the human beings capacity to do that and bring that into the process. And so they focus a lot on things like universal skills where, you know, uh, teaching people how to speak up and how to question authority and a lot of different things, tying into safety culture a lot, Um, but giving actual skills and behaviors to do that because we should actually optimize the people in our system to be you know, the safety uh, or the the harm preventers, uh, as opposed to kind of taking them out of the picture altogether, we can really leverage the people and then the process part as well.
0: That's
2: really well said. You know, you were speaking earlier about the importance of the patient voice uh, with regards to uh, system safety. You know, right now, a lot of healthcare systems around the country are, are planning for the 21st Century Cures Act and the information blocking rule that starts taking effect in April 5th, where you know notes and, and lab results and other things like that will, will be more easily, more freely shared with patients. And I don't, I don't know your familiarity with, with open notes, but uh, within clinical informatics, it's, it's a, a big uh, deal. And several organizations have been doing this for you know close to a decade where they share the notes. Automatically with patients, both inpatient and outpatient, and, and what they found was that it, w- with doing that, uh, patients picked up on more medication errors or other errors that were uh, occurring within the hospital. And, and I was just going to get your perspective on, on where you think that movement will is going to take us in the future and how important that, that input is from those
3: patients. Yeah, I mean, I am a big advocate of transparency um, at many levels and certainly with our patients and, you know, the concept that the patient record is the patient's, not ours. Um, and so, and and full disclosure, I know the open notes folks very well because they're in Boston, which is where I am. Uh, I was at the Brigham and they're at the BI, so right literally across the street from uh, from the Brigham. Uh, and so, so, I followed their work and they really have seen, um, you know, lots of uh uh, improved outcomes in terms of patients being more likely to follow their you know treatment plan um you know patients identifying uh things that are erroneous in the chart uh etc i think that um and when i was at brigham and women's too we were pretty we were pretty open with putting uh using our patient portal and posting test results and other things there and i remember when we did that um there was all sorts of worry about oh we're going to get all these phone calls and people are going to not understand and I mean it was this like you know the sky is falling and then we did it and literally none of that happened Uh, and we had lots of anecdotes about oh my patient called me and happened to notice that they had this elevated whatever that I had missed Uh, and so it was like this additional you know safety check as well so I had I heard way more of those positive stories than the oh we got inundated with a bunch of phone calls so you know, I think we need to figure out the right processes to make this happen and not have it be this crazy burden on practices. But I think there's enough experience out there that we can do that. And I think the value uh, to patients is pretty significant to, to have that level of transparency.
1: Uh, yeah, I, I totally agree. But, Jack, I do think I wish we could get on the CBC. I wish we could get down to where we reported the white count, <laughs> the the hematocrit and the platelet count because, you know, you'll get patients asking you about indices that are, that are high or low that, to be well, my but, general yeah, surgeon I, friends don't even know what those are. You know? yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, maybe, maybe the hematologists don't even know. Well,
2: what those are used for. Hey, Jeff, just don't order it with diff. You don't need to be ordering it with a diff. Okay.
3: But, you That's know, it's right. a good, it's a good point because, you know, we have to make this information digestible for patients too. Right? It's, uh, you know, we talk about health literacy and all the challenges we have with health literacy and, you know, how do we make this information usable? To patients and not overwhelming is is I think an important question um, as we go forward.
1: You know, right now there's a there's a big buzzword in healthcare. You know, high reliability organization or HRO, and you know a lot of healthcare systems say, well, we we we're, we're an HRO. What, what 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 do they mean by that?
3: <laughs> well, they probably all mean different things. I exactly. Think and, you know, uh, my colleagues will often say it's it's not a high reliability organization, it's high reliability organizing, because actually we're all on a journey here. You know, it's not like you, you get to X and now you're a high reliability organization. You know, it's a constant evolving journey and process. So I kind of like the idea of saying high reliability organizing as, a, as, as opposed to, you know, that yes, we're just a high reliability organization. Um, but you know, I think when people are talking about that, they're they're talking about um, a lot of the concepts we've touched on. First of all, like you know, the the um, you know the the leadership and culture pieces, particularly on safety and a focus on safety. But but really across the board, having that focus on um, uh, you know setting that aspirational goal of you know whether it's zero harm or um, you know uh, achieving the highest quality and all that. So first, you have that that aspirational vision, but then you have the the systems and processes in place that use things like um, human factors and systems design and all those kinds of things to think about process redesign. And you have a consistent way of doing process design. Yes, you need all that process stuff, but then you need the, the people stuff, which includes leadership skills and universal skills. It includes things like huddles and rounds and daily management systems, things that keep you in real time, understanding what the issues are and then problem solving and improving those systems. And again, it's very methodologic as opposed to kind of, you know, in bits and pieces, it's kind of, it's an overarching system um, across the board and, you know, one way I like to think about high reliability too, um, it's come out of the safety world. So everyone says, oh, high reliability, that's about safety, which is true. And the concepts of high reliability can really improve anything. I mean, what is high reliability? It's performing as intended consistently over time. That's the definition of reliability, performing as intended consistently over time. So that could apply to, you know, Quality that could apply to patient experience, that could apply to efficiency, and you know finance or whatever it is. But it's having that system in place that's going to allow you to perform as intended. And and, and again, that in, involves the the leadership, the culture, the process redesign stuff, but in the kind of the daily management stuff and the and all of those pieces. Um, But that, to me, is what high reliability organizing is, and it's very systematic across an organization as opposed to, well, you know, we do it in the pharmacy, but we don't do it in, you know, the lab, or we don't do it in surgery. We do it in, you know, medicine or whatever it is. It has to be a really fundamental, as we talked about earlier, foundational approach that no matter what we're working on, no matter what we're working on to fix, we're going to use these same concepts.
2: You mentioned earlier in your intro that you previously… You know, work to really maybe optimize the, the EHR to improve quality and safety and a lot of my job is spent uh, in that regard as well. Uh, 1 of the 1 of the frustrations I get is that. If there is a safety event or an issue in quality that needs to be improved, they, they look really. To the technical team to make a tweak in the EHR that will all of a sudden improve all these processes and, you know, get rid of that issue in the future. And I, I take, you You share my same concern with if we don't improve the process, we're not really going to, or, or, or work with the people to improve the process. It, there's nothing that we can just do technically that is going to fix all those downstream effects, even though there are, you know, technical problems we can fix. What What are your thoughts uh, along that side of things, having worked in that that area for a while?
3: I could talk about this for a long time. Yeah. Um... So, you know, uh, I like to say if you have a bad process and you add technology, you're going to have a faster bad process. Um, And that's often where we end up. Uh, And one of the the things that, um, I mean, if you look at root cause analyses, for example, I mean, so much of if you really start getting deep into the causes, I mean, so much of it is about things like teamwork and communication and other things. And certainly technology can facilitate some of that, but there's usually a lot of non-technology things that need to happen to get at solving um, some of those kinds of issues. And so it, you know, it's so easy to have the knee-jerk response to say, well, let's just put an alert into the, you know, order entry system to prevent this, as opposed to sort of asking five other, but why did it really happen? Why did it really happen and starting to get to those root causes? So I think there's… You know, as as you you know, kind of build your uh, your teams that are doing these kinds of analyses. It's so important to get that you know, ask why as many times as you can to kind of get to some of those underlying causes. Because to your point, it's it's the easy you know, the easy answers in a root cause analysis. The two that I hear all the time: we'll write a policy, and we'll talk to IT. (laughs) And we have to you know get further than that. And those may be part of the solution, but those are pretty unlikely to be the full the full answer.
1: I don't know how much you have been involved with with medical education, but how much of this is being integrated into the medical school curriculum now? Is is any, do we need more? Because, you know, I graduated med school almost 30 years ago, and and we didn't talk about any of this. And, and, and Jake, you guys probably didn't either. And, and, Dr. Gandhi, I don't know about you, but about well, you, but uh,
2: well, at least when I was in residency, we did have mandatory. It was either you could do your own, I guess uh, I forgot what it was called, but you could either do the IHI course or you could do separate uh, training and continuous improvement. And and um, I, don't, I don't know, um, Dr. Gandhi, you know your thoughts on where that is currently and, and where that's gone. But uh, that was at least something
1: different. I didn't even have the I didn't even have the eighty-hour work week. I mean
2: oh I,
3: I see dr Mason I'm I'm in your uh your era sadly no, I'm just kidding
1: <laughs> yeah <laughs> I, I wish mean, we
3: had, I, had had the 80 hour work week exactly
1: I, I did my, my <laughs> intern year I think I did 10 months of every other night call in-house yeah
3: yeah I did not have 10 months thinking well you were in surgery that's why um but uh I where I trained it was you know in our ICU as every other for about eight weeks and that was enough for me um but the uh so to answer your question I think there's more than we had, which you know Jake just alluded to, and and so there has been some improvement, but I I don't think it's really been systematic in medical schools. It's been in pockets. You'll you know I'll hear about a school that's doing some amazing stuff, but it's not across the board, and it also can be pretty siloed as well, where it's kind of like you take the safety elective or you take the safety course. The way I would envision it needs to be is really embedded in. Like I mean, this is just part of everyday work when you're rounding, when you're talking to your patients, when you're doing everything, it's not this like, oh, and now we think about safety as a separate thing. It's just gotta be embedded in. And so so I think we have more work to do on that front. Um, nursing schools actually have a standard curriculum and I think have done a, a better job of getting it into their curriculum. The only other thing I'll say though is even with it being in, so it's so it's in med schools, I think there's work to do. In residency, there is the ACGME CLEAR program, and they've been trying to advocate for much more safety in residency programs as well. That's been challenging because often residency directors may not be um, particularly expert in this area, so have a little difficulty teaching uh, around safety, for example, Um, but the thing I worry about so I fully agree we need to do it, but what I wor- what I worry about because I've seen it is the students learn this stuff and then they get into the hospital and they immediately get um, squelched by a more senior physician who, you know, doesn't want somebody to question or doesn't want someone to report a safety event or whatever it might be. So we need to do more in- for the trainees, but I actually think until we really get our existing docs to understand this stuff, it's pretty hard for trainees to to you know advance this kind of work because as as soon as you get yelled at because you questioned or you you know suggested that maybe there was a mistake somewhere if you if you get shot down on that you're not going to bring it up again so we have to we have sure. to uh, do this across the board
0: well, well Dr Gandhi I am so incredibly thankful I'm actually a little surprised that we went through our time that quick we could talk for several more hours and Listen to some of Jake's lame jokes and uh, and uh, just really, uh, really enjoy uh, hearing you speak. And so thankful for your passion. And thank you so much for uh, spending some time with us today.
3: Yeah. It is my pleasure, really.
1: Uh, thanks. Thanks a lot, Dr. Gandhi. I, I really we really enjoyed it. Enjoyed. It. Thank you.
3: Thanks so much.